Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banner Podcast, where birders talk birding. This has been a terrific day. I've had a great day today. In addition to talking with Tom Bancroft, who's my guest on this episode, I got out birding a little bit. Just before I sat down to talk with Tom, I got a text. We have a little Pierce County birders uh, text chain that there were 13 parasitic Jaegers seen by Will Brooks uh, and Heather and Marcus off Dunes Peninsula. And I was saying, bummer, I made these arrangements to talk to Tom and uh, they might be gone before I can get there, but they weren't. I uh, did the recording for this episode and dashed over to Dunes and sure enough, met uh, Wayne uh, and Marjorie there. And just after I set up my scope, a parasitic Jaeger came chasing a Caspian turn just right in. It was so close that it ducked behind the Point Defiance ferry it, right into the bay there uh, in front of Anthony's before it swooped back out. I managed to get a couple of pictures as it swooped back out across uh, the bay. Uh, we all got good looks at it. It was really nice. And then not too much longer, uh, a first of the year for the county, Hearman's Gull flew right in front of us on dunes. Got some pictures of that too. Just really nice. So two first of the, first of the year county birds for me on a day in September is really good. Uh, They're hard to come by at this time of year, and so I was pretty excited about that. It's also just a beautiful day here. It was supposed to be really hot, turned out to be just in the high 60s, low 70s, sunny, not too much wind, just a terrific day. So I have had a great day, but by far my highlight of the day was talking to Tom Bancroft on the podcast this morning. I first met Tom at my first board meeting for the Washington Ornithologic Society. I'm not sure exactly what qualified me to be on the Board of Trustees for WAS. I think it's that I'm uh, not so unpleasant that people didn't mind sitting in a room with me for a couple of couple of hours periodically and that uh, I said yes. Some of the other members seem to have a lot more qualifications and skill set than I do uh, and I'm certainly glad for their service but uh, I'm on the WAS board for better or for worse and that's where I met Tom Bancroft. Well, I can tell you, Tom is a heck of a lot more than somebody you can sit in a room with for a couple of hours. He is a really sharp, well-rounded, knowledgeable guy with a diverse set of skill sets. I knew he was a good writer because I read the WASP newsletter and have read, it seems like every newsletter, he has a good article in it that's just well-written and informational and just fun to read. So I knew he's a good writer and I've seen some of his photography, so I knew he's a good photographer, but I really didn't know his story. He is a trained ornithologist who's had some fascinating jobs. Uh, one of his early jobs after his training was in the Everglades. He worked for National Audubon there on policy and conservation and research issues and uh, got to know the long-legged waders and the white-crowned pigeons of the Everglades really well. Uh, so that was pretty cool. I learned about that. I also learned he had the job as a chief scientist for National Audubon Society. That sounds pretty impressive. Chief scientist for National Audubon? Well, I think it is pretty impressive. He had that role for a few years and now lives in the Seattle area. So we get to have Tom in our birding community and it's a nice addition to our birding community. So I'm excited today to have as my guest on the Bird Banner Podcast number 74, Tom Bancroft. Help me welcome Tom. Tom, thanks for being on the podcast today. I really was hoping to get you on as a guest. I met you, uh, really, for the first time in person at our WASP meetings after I joined the WASP board, and you're the secretary there, or have been the secretary there, and I, I think uh, 
terming out there. But anyway, I was just so impressed about all the various skill sets you have, photography, writing, teaching, and organizational skills. Uh, and so I thought, and turns out you're a really good birder too. So I thought, what a great guess. So Tom, I thought maybe we could start by you're sort of telling me how you came to have all those skills. Uh, I know you've had a varied career. Tell me how you got into birding and, and how that's progressed through your career. Oh, sure. Well, thank you very much for having me, Ed. I'm really excited to be here. You know, I've, I love birds for all my life. My One of my earliest memories is when I was five years old and I was raised on a farm in Western Pennsylvania and I climbed into the sink in our kitchen so I could look out the kitchen window at my mother's bird feeders and, and I w- was caught. She caught me there with my feet square in the sink staring at these birds, not having any idea what they were. And instead of yelling at me, she came over and asked me what I was looking at. And I think ever since then, I've just had this fascination with birds. And we would go for walks on the farm when I was in elementary school and high school. And then I had a high school biology teacher who took a dozen of us all over Western Pennsylvania looking at birds. And then I went on to undergraduate school in Arizona to study birds and went down into Mexico with with um, several people from the school there and did a lot of field trips there uh, and then came back and worked for Carnegie Museum in the bird range for several years before I went off to graduate school. Um, so I birds have been part of my life forever. And, you know, I continued I always wanted to be a university professor, and so I got a graduate degree studying birds. I studied scrub jays and blue jays for my master's, and then bow-tailed grackles for my PhD. They were both esoteric questions uh, for all for all of that work. And then I, what, after teaching for two years, I went to work for National Audubon on Everglades issues and started to get into conservation from there. And we worked on wading birds in the Everglades and on white-crowned pigeons in the Florida Keys. Those were my two big projects. And from that, I kind of got into policy issues. And after three years at Archibald Biological Station working on Everglades issues for them, too, I went off to Washington, D.C. to to head up the research department for the Wilderness Society and try to make that interface between science and policy. And then on to work on uh, for National Audubon Society as their chief scientist for several years before I moved out here to Seattle. And now it's all about helping people enjoy the out of doors. I lead field trips for, for Washington Orthological Society. I've got three classes scheduled for this fall, one for Seattle Audubon, which will start in a, in a few days, and then one for the Mountaineers, and then another one for Eastside Audubon. And unfortunately, in the pandemic, we can't lead field trips. Otherwise, I'd be doing lots of field trips, too. So it sounds like you have uh, really evolved into even more of a field birder in uh, recent years due to probably having more time to do that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I I had never been, you know, I had done a lot of just getting out and birding, and I'd done a lot of traveling for birds over my lifetime, you know, including leading the leading some international trips with National Audubon. But in this kind of recent time, it's been a lot more about helping people see things, helping people identify stuff. And so I 
both get out on my own, get out with some friends, and also leads lots of field trips. And it's all about you know, just helping people see more, not only just identify stuff, but learn more about their ecology, learn more about, you know, what they're seeing and, and oh, what what is that behavior? What does that mean? You know, what did we just see there? All of those kinds of things. I just think I find that really fascinating um, and helping people name stuff. Because I think, you know, when you start to put a name on things, then you start to recognize it, then you start to anticipate it, then you start to have a like for it. And so it, it builds an emotional connection with things when you can say, oh, I know what that bird is, or I know what that flower is. So it's a, a lot more focused on that. And I think that's where my a lot of my writing and photography has come to also is, can you show that emotions in a visual picture that we have when we're out there in the wilds? And can you put that into words in a way that maybe you take somebody along with you as you're walking out there looking at a bird or seeing a new landscape. Um, so those have all been really fascinating and kind of evolution in how I've thought about things. Very cool. I have to say your articles in WAS are always really well received, at least by me. I, I sure enjoy reading them. Uh, and I, you just had a recent sort of an essay. I don't know if it's an article or an essay that is going to be part of an upcoming book, isn't it? Didn't I hear that? Yeah, that's correct. Yes. Um, Susan Rogers, uh, an editor that's done a lot of anthologies, and she put out an announcement a year or so ago. She was going to do an anthology called When Birds Are Near. And so I saw that, and I submitted a couple articles to her, a couple essays to her, and she picked one of mine to include in that. And the When Birds Are Near will be published by Cornell University Press in October of 2020 here. So it's coming out just in a few weeks. And got a collection of uh, 25 or 30 writers in it. And the essay that I wrote is a little bit about, you know, how do you, how did I get into birding? What's that connection there? And, and I used uh, a couple of years ago, I was out by myself on one of those nice, absolutely freezing January days that we rarely have here in the Seattle Northwest. And there was frost over everything. And I was watching ruby crown kinglets feeding down on the ground and some weeds on the ground. And I use that to reflect back on the first time I saw a ruby crown kinglet and identified it. Um, and I had gone with three friends from high school. I was a sophomore in high school and we'd gone up to Presque Isle, which is this peninsula that sticks out in the Lake Erie. And so, of course, it gets this huge congregation of migrating warblers and migrating everything, flycatchers and tanagers and all sorts of stuff that don't want to cross Lake Erie to Canada. So they just build up in numbers and we lucked out. We hit the best weekend that you could ever possibly imagine. And we'd gone up there to see warblers. Well, you know, I knew about two warblers at that point. And so we get up there and the first thing I find is a ruby crown kinglet. And so I call everybody back thinking I have a warbler. And of course I don't, and they just go off to look for warblers. But then I use that to just, you know, think about high school and you know how do you how do you fit in when you're interested in birds and everybody else in high school is interested in girls or football or you know or whatever sex drugs and rock and roll sure exactly yeah you know so it was a chance to kind of not only talk about birds but talk about life you know and i think one of the things too is 
I had moved out here to Seattle for a job, and then, you know, I, the, the, the job disappeared and whatnot. You know, I didn't know where my life was going, and it was also a chance to realize, you know, I had been putting off moving from the Pacific Northwest back east for three or four years, and maybe it's because I had made my decision. This was where I wanted to live. The The environment out here is just so amazing that the chance to see birds, to hike in the mountains, to take people to see things was where my new life was. So it's a chance to kind of try to tie all those things together. Well, welcome to the community. We're sure glad you're here. It's a great place to live, I have to say. This whole uh, Puget Sound, Cascades, Olympics, Pacific Coast, it's, it's a great state. It's a great place to live, especially for a birder. You're, you're, yeah. Are you an active mountaineer or, or are, do you, you know, doing a lot of mountaineering or do you just are affiliated with that group? Well, just affiliated with that group, that's an interesting thing. You know, when I found myself here by myself, um, you know, I'm, I'm, my wife died about 10 years ago and I moved out here. I actually found a girlfriend that I was desperately in love with. And then she left me a week after I lost the job out here. You know, everybody said you ought to join the Mountaineers. And I said, I'm not a Mountaineer. I'm not going to go climb mountains. And so I didn't, um, but then I joined it and discovered there's this subgroup within the Mountaineers that's all about natural history. Oh. And it's people just love to, to go look for wildflowers, to go look for birds in my case. Um, and so I found the real community of, of people that really have a fascination with everything that's about the natural world, including geology. Um, and so... I took a general course then, and then I became head of that some group. I'm actually the chair of the naturalist group for the Mountaineers, and we probably have five or 600 people in that group out of the oh, wow. 14,000 people that are part of the Mountaineers. And so I kind of head that up. We were teaching this intro to the natural course, introduction to the natural world, that we had about 10 people help teach it, and we'd get 80 people a year in it. And then we had to cancel that because of COVID. And so then I started to teach some birding classes for them and just had this response from the community there that was, you know, beyond my expectations, <laughs> I guess you could say it. And just all of these people that like, yeah, I've seen birds when I'm out hiking. Now help me figure out how to identify them. Tell me about something about them. So that's been really fascinating to see this. And, you know, in some ways I'm, you know, helping them expand out in, in some new ways. Yeah, it's a pretty cool. It sounds like the birding course you put on there had just a fabulous, uh, fabulous uh, attendance and must have been pretty exciting for you to teach. Uh, it, Tom, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip back to your uh, time getting away from the Mountaineers for a second. Cause skip back to your time in, in the Everglades. I got my first day of birding was in the Everglades. I've told the story before on the podcast. I'm not going to go through it before, but yeah. I, I walked down in Hinga Way uh, uh -huh. in the Everglades. Before, oh yeah, that's a fantastic before, place. Yeah. Before the hurricanes, it was even more fantastic than it is now. And you'd go right out to the end of the walkway there and you're looking at this pond that was like a poster of long-legged waders. I mean, mm -hmm. e egrets and herons and spoonbills and ibises all just 
wandering around together. It's like you, you literally could have taken a picture and made a poster. It was that spectacular. Uh, so uh, the fact that you spent years there uh, working and did a lot of research with uh, uh, egrets and waders, that's pretty exciting to me. Tell me some of, some more stories about that. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, I did. I, I Right after graduate school, I got a job with National Audubon, and they have their big office uh, on down in Tavernier in, in the Upper Keys. And I was hired to do two projects for them. One was on wading birds up in the Everglades National Park. This was the mid-1980s, 1984, and there was lots of controversy over you know, how to manage water running into Everglades National Park out of the upper parts of the Everglades, the water conservation area. There had been a federal lawsuit that had sued the state and Army Corps of Engineers over their water management, and there was needs to solve that. And birds were a central part of that problem on the challenge because you've got a whole set of endangered species there. You've got the wood stork, which needed water in a certain way. You've got it had the Everglades snail kite, which needed water in a different way. And you had the Cape Sable seaside sparrow, which needed water in a third way. And so there was the need to really have some expertise around birds and be part of that. And, and I was hired to develop a project looking at that, that mangrove freshwater interface in the southern part of the Everglades, which was where the huge, massive colonies of wading birds nested back in the 30s up until the 60s, and their numbers had gone way down. And so that was one project. And then the other project that was really fascinating that I got to develop was on the white crown pigeon. And the white crown pigeon is a fruit-eating pigeon. It is a Caribbean bird, just barely gets in the United States in the Florida Keys. It's listed as threatened in the, uh, by Florida and was under consideration for listing by the, by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And so I got to develop a project looking at their breeding ecology and what was their requirements. And so those were the kind of the two things. And I originally took the job thinking this would be a nice postdoc stepping stone into a university. And then it turns out I was being successful raising some money and I ended up staying there for 10 years. And the projects played out in some really fascinating ways. We we worked a lot in colonies of, of wading birds nesting up into the Everglades. And so one of the things we would do is go by boat way up there and then camp out either on little islands or we'd camp out. They have these little chickies that are just a flat platform out from the mangroves. And so you'd camp in there. And like I remember one of those ones we were studying in this colony called Rogers River Bay, which is a mixed colony of, of egrets and herons. And we came back to that chicky and we, you know, sat down on the chicky and it's after dark and we're getting ready to make make dinner there and somebody turns on a flashlight, big mistake, big mistake, turned on that flashlight and we just heard this buzz almost like it's a million little airplanes coming out from the mangroves, which was 30 feet away there. And it was the mosquitoes, (laughs) you know, they just descended upon us. Um, But that was fascinating things. And then, you know, what was interesting in there and, and, you know, I was a naive scientist coming out of graduate school, do good research and the research will drive policy. And there was lots of policy things going on. Well, it doesn't work that way. Uh, What drives policy is our values and how our values play out. So we really needed to influence that. So we really needed to be 
we really needed to have the scientists in the middle of all of those discussions. And I was actually very honored. I got called by the um, Everglades Coalition, which is this group of 28 or 30 different environmental groups, and was asked to represent them on a technical committee that was designing the restoration strategy for cleaning water coming out of the Everglades agricultural area. Mm. And so I sat on that committee for two years, I guess. And the other people on the committee included federal government people, state government people, and the sugar industry. Mm. Um, And, you know, lots of good arguments. But out of that came a bill that was eventually passed by the state that has been driving the restoration in the northern part of the Everglades. And, you know, had I been given carte blanche, I would have done it a little different way. But, you know, things are always compromised. And so it's actually one of the things I'm very proud of was that I was in the middle of that. The other thing that was happening, which was really fascinating, is because the the state and the federal government have all of these specific things that specify how they're allowed to interact, there was actually two different programs going on, at two different groups of people going on, thinking about how do you restore the ecological, the kind of quantity and timing of flow through the Everglades. So there was a federal group and there was a state group doing it. And people from the federal government weren't allowed to be on the state one. And people from the state government weren't allowed to be on the federal one. Mm-hmm. But I could be on both. Oh, and I, you're and, the liaison. Yeah. And so it was fun. I got to run back and forth. And I got to learn some of the politics. At one point, I complained bloody murder to somebody about something that was happening at the other place. And the word came back. And then they threatened to never let me back into the other one. So, you know, I, I learned that you've got to play these things in a very careful way. And uh, it was kind of the first step in learning the best way to get something done is to convince them that it was their idea, you know? Sure. So, you know, so I had a lot of that. So that was really fun. And, you know, I was kind of in the middle of all of that decision making, but yet sitting on the outside of all of it. And one of the things some of the scientists did down there, which was, I think, really innovative is they said, you know, one of the problems is we, the scientists, don't talk to each other. So the hydrologists don't talk to the bird people who don't talk to the fish people. And so what got us all together and we did this four day symposium that was just all about science. And then they put out this gigantic book that, you know, don't take it to bed because it will suffocate you that summarized all this information. But one of the things they did was they brought in these outside scientists who weren't I didn't know, have any knowledge of the Everglades, including these two people from the University of British Columbia out here. And they did a whole bunch of modeling. And one of the things they said was, well, we should model what this Everglades used to look like before we drained half of it. So they developed this fairly complex, but yet simple model. And oh my God, did it make the, it made the federal government and the state government really mad because they said, their resolution on this, um, you know, the size of the areas they would use for each pixel in this model were too big. They generalized rainfall too much. They didn't do the slopes on the soil well enough. All of these things were wrong with it. So the federal government, or actually the state government, I then took the lead in redoing a, a much more sophisticated natural model of the system. Mm-hmm. What well, turns out this, and, uh, and the guys from British Columbia said, 
we will throw this model away when we're done with it because it won't be right. You know, they, they kind of come into that. But it made us think about things we'd never thought about, which is what they, their point were. Sure. So, so the state spent millions and millions of dollars making a much more sophisticated model. And it turns out this fly-by-night model was 90% of the way there. You know? so, so it was fascinating to kind of see that. Yeah. Sometimes perfect is the enemy of uh, good enough, you know. Yeah. uh, uh, And then my other project, I don't know if you got to see white crown pigeons when you were down there, but. Oh, yes. You know, they just look like a pigeon and most people go, oh, my God, you just like pigeons. And I just love pigeons. I actually was watching my band-tailed pigeons coming to my feeder, drooling over them a few minutes ago. But they're a fruit-eating bird. They're threatened. Turns out they're really important ecologically because most of the fruit they eat, they don't digest the seed. Sure. So they either regurgitate it or they pass it. And so they move it between all of these little isolated hammocks. They move those seeds. So they're really important seed disperser. So I started this project down there and we raised some funds. And I had had a lab that at one point had six or eight people working for me in it. And so we were able to do all kinds of different studies. And we learned a whole lot of stuff about white crown pigeons. And then it's like, what do you do with this science? <laughs> well, luckily, there are people that know how to do that. So I partnered up with the Nature Conservancy and with the Florida Naturalist Areas Inventory. And the Florida had passed in 1990 this uh, called Florida 2000 Act, which was going to take money. Anytime there was a land transaction, some money went into a pot that could be used on conservation, and it was divided up into a bunch of little pots. But we put a joint proposal together and submitted it to the state. And then I went three times up to Tallahassee and made three different presentations to the decision makers, which was uh, six people, a representative from each of the six major um, state agencies that oversee land in in, uh, Florida. Mm Mm-hmm. And our proposal got ranked number 11th out of 100 proposals, and it needed to be in the top 15 in order to, quote, be in the money. And then two years after that, they combined that upper Florida Keys proposal with the lower Florida Keys proposal that the Nature Conservancy had already put in, um, and they put them together. And so it even actually moved higher up in rank. And the combination of Florida, the federal government, and the county has now spent tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars buying land in the Florida Keys because of that work on white crown pigeons. Very cool. Uh, Very Yeah, cool. so sometimes that was it, really fun. Sometimes your work really pays off. It sounds like that did. Yeah. Cool. I, I have to say, I read, I read an article about the Everglades. It might have been in an Audubon magazine. It was years ago, but I never realized that, that the Everglades is really a river. It's like a six-inch deep, 50-mile-wide river. It is, yeah. That, that yeah. water just slowly flows almost across the whole state of Florida. And yeah, it, it yeah. Used to be, I think it used to be the whole state of Florida, but now it's uh, in bits and pieces and fragmented and not not like it used to be. But it's an incredibly cool habitat. When you're there, you, I feel like I should be in Africa. It seems like a savanna, <laughs> savanna this tall grass. Yeah. Oh, it's just amazing. No, I love the time down there. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. When you drive along the, the roads in the Everglades, you come to, it'll be such and such a pass, elevation three and a half feet. I know. <laughs> cool I know. Sign. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. When you're headed down toward Flamingo, there's that place 
there where you're going through the Pinelands and they have that sign. And I've always wished I had a good photograph of that sign. You know? yeah, it is really cool. Yeah. Really cool. Uh, so you are intimate with swallowtail kites and hooked oh, yeah. kites and all of that stuff. Tom, I'm going to switch subjects again because you had another uh, job that sounds uh, pretty cool. You were the chief scientist with National Audubon for several years. What I the was. Heck, heck is the chief scientist for natural audubon and what what does that job entail and how did you do that yeah well um that was that was based in washington dc so I, I went in as kind of one of the senior staff in 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 national audubon john flicker was the president at the time and my role was you know it was always hard to really know what your role was but it was a combination of things um as you know National Audubon has all of these state programs kind of spread around the country, and many of those state programs had scientists on staff. And so I was to help in all of that, you know, kind of keep some national focus on the science, keep some interface going between all of these different components of the organization. And the some of the key things we were involved in is the important bird program, the important bird area program. And you know, maintaining it and keeping it moving forward in a coherent way. And that is part of BirdLife International. So BirdLife International is this composite of organizations with one representative from each country, and it covers the whole world. And so I was also a liaison between, you know, what was BirdLife International doing and thinking about bird conservation at multiple levels, the species level, as well as the place level. And so, you know, how to bring that information back and forth between the United States and and what's happening at the world. And I did get, I got to go to one of the fun trips I got as chief scientist was to make a presentation to BirdLife International, International's conference down in um, Argentina. And Ooh. so, you know, I got, there was like a thousand people in the room there and it's like, oh my God, I got to talk to all of these people. So that was really fun to kind of do that. So that was a component of it. You know, another component of it was, you know, helping at that policy science interface. And so the, the Secretary of Interior appointed me and Mike Dalton, the um, policy person for the uh, National Audubon to sit on the committee that was giving advice to the Department of Interior and the Fish and Wildlife Service on how to site windmills and how do you site windmills so as to minimize the threat to birds, to, to uh, bats. Those were the two big issues. And so we spent two years on that committee. And then about, I don't know, two-thirds of the way through that, Mike could no longer serve on it because of some hoopra that the federal government had around, you know, who was allowed to give them advice and who wasn't. And so I had to kind of take over the lead at the final part of that as that thing got approved and the, mm. and the Fish and Wildlife Service kind of came out with, these are our recommendations on how you cite wind in order to minimize its environmental impact. So that was very fascinating. And again, you know, this situation of multiple interests sitting around the table. I think there were 25 of us on that committee, included people from wind as well as people from development kinds of stuff. And so, you know, again, some heavy duty discussions that both got into science and got into those values kinds of things on, on you know, how you play it out. So that was a key role. And then when, 
when the Gulf oil spill happened, you know, that became front oh, and center. And, you know, I became both a lead spokesman for National Audubon on the effects of oil and the problems of oil and what how might that play out, as well as I went to Louisiana and Alabama and Mississippi and helped train volunteers to do birth, to do surveys along the beach. And we helped set up in collaboration with the Fish and Wildlife Service and a bunch of other groups. We set up some citizen survey systems that would help feed information back into the discussion. I think the main goal of our or the main outcome of our stuff was less the science as it was getting people involved and keeping this front and center in, in the public dialogue. But, you know, I got interviewed on CNN and a whole bunch of other places. Uh, yeah. Really, I was actually out here in Seattle on a fundraising trip, and I get this call. NPR wants to uh, interview me for it for their afternoon program, All Things Considered. Mm. So I end up going to the local NPR station here at the U University of Washington, and I'm sitting in there being interviewed by a reporter in Washington, D.C. So, yeah. you know, it was that was kind of fun to see how fantastic our technology is these days, as it you and is. I are talking in different we're, we're, different we're, cities. Uh, we're yeah. doing it now. Yeah, yeah, it is pretty cool. So I'm going to switch yet again. In in recently, you have put together a number of online birding classes. I'd like to hear how how do you do that? I've I've kind of I haven't taken any online birding classes, but I I you know do, are they like Zoom classes where you have a PowerPoint and you talk through it, or, or are they interactive? How does that work? Yeah, yeah, it's a Zoom class. So you know it it. And that was the challenge. I had done them in person. And as you know, the nice thing about in person is you as the instructor can kind of read people's faces and see, are you explaining it or are they getting it? You need to try a different technique. Um, and there's, you know, that chance for interaction there. And on Zoom, you don't have that same way. So the, the challenge was to figure out how can you make this in an exciting way that you really can engage and keep the audience engaged then. So we did it with a PowerPoint. And then the other thing I used was a thing called Google Classrooms, which is outside of the PowerPoint, but it gave a chance for interactions in between classes. It gave a place to post answers to questions. It gave a place to put a whole bunch of supplemental in information on. Um, in the Zoom class, I couldn't really use videos because we couldn't maintain good enough internet connection from me up into the cloud, down into a whole bunch of other people. And so videos were hard to use. So we used a lot of, of uh, just still pictures. And then I figured out how to draw right on the still pictures in a lot of the classes. So, oh. you know, I either would make my cursor gigantic um, or in some cases we were able to turn on this drawing uh, feature so you would go in there and and point to the specific thing you wanted to talk about on a on a bird um, and so we would do a lot of that kinds of things showing there and then you know the uh, Chris Wood who was one of the lead people with eBird he did a he and it and his wife Jesse I forget her last name right now they did this really cool course about ten years ago that said you know one of the ways to think about birds anyways is you think about them in when we're out birding and you've birded for a while, there's so many things your brain can absorb that you don't even know it's absorbing. 
and you know, it's just picking up this this gist of a bird. The what's mm-hmm. the, yeah, jizz. The, the jizz of the bird. You know. So sure. how do you teach somebody that? And their idea was five things: shape and size, color patterns, not detailed colors, but the big patterns, um, habitat and distribution, songs, be- and behaviors. So those those things. So I try to center it all around that stuff and. You know, for some groups, you might emphasize more the shape than you do the size, and size is so relative. You know, it's not, you try to figure out how big they are, but they use the, Cornell has this yardstick, which has a house sparrow, a robin, a crow, a mallard, and a Canada goose on it. So that's the yardstick. And so you're comparing it, getting people to think about size, not as absolute size, but is that bigger? than a robin or is that the same size as a robin you know that kind of thing exactly and then and then i figured out how to take merlin and i could flip in zoom i could flip out of the powerpoint directly into merlin the app merlin and have people step right through and so you know i would tell people for this class i want you to have merlin on your phone or your your uh, you know your uh device yeah tablet and be prepared to use it during class. And, you know, I will show them a picture of like the first one I did was a picture of a gadwall. And I can't show the gadwall when I have Merlin on. So I said, okay, here's what you need to remember about this bird. And then we flip over and I have them just step through and use Merlin to identify. And then we just kind of work through groups of birds like that. Um, Merlin is incredibly could I mean I have to say I, I don't use it much locally because I have a pretty good feel for the local birds or even in the ABA. But when I visited uh, Costa Rica and Guatemala recently in, in recent mm-hmm. years, it's just unbelievably good. It, I mean, you point out yeah. and it gives you two three choices, so that's it. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah. yeah, and that's what I try to tell people. You know, don't use this as absolute. This isn't absolute. This is just a tool. And it, you know, if it gets you closer, great. If it doesn't. Go some other route, you know, and uh, so a lot of that kind of stuff. And then I figured out how to give quizzes. And um, so I'll show up quizzes on there, which is just, you know, a series of 10 bird pictures for them to figure out. And then I go back through them and say, okay, this is what you look for. And what I'm working on now for these fall classes is finding, and oh, and I go and I try to find, which I can do that easily with my own photographs, but I also go and try to find photographs that are hard to identify because that's yeah. what we get when we're in the field. You know, we don't sure. always get good weather. We don't always get, you know, the perfect look with the perfect plumage and the warbler high in the tree from underneath with backlighting. Ooh, exactly. Right? Yeah. What does that tail pattern mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I got this picture yesterday just sitting in my patio of a young junco from the backside and you look at it and you go, I have no idea what that bird is, you know, yeah. but I knew it was because I was seeing it there. And I'm thinking, unless you had seen this bird move around, you probably can't figure it out. And I think that's okay too. And you know, what I want to be able to show them is it's okay not to identify everything. Don't, you know, don't beat yourself up. If all I know is it had to have been a sparrow, but I don't know which of these four it could be. That's okay. Yeah. You know? So. Well, I'm glad you give me permission because I feel better now. <laughs> we all, we, if you don't let a bird go now and then, you're not being honest to yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And also, you know, I'm in, I've been doing this all my life and I still screw up sometimes. And I think, 
you know, one that I still have to laugh about. I had this group of six or eight people on a field trip last fall, and we were up at Edmonds Pier, and we're out there looking at all this cool stuff, and we turn around, and somebody spots a couple sandpipers over on on the uh, on the, the big rocks over there, and I look at them real quick, and I think, okay, they're rock sandpipers, and that's what I tell everybody. Well, I get back and look at my photographs. That's not what they were. They were surfbirds. Absolutely perfect photograph of a surfbird. Yeah. So all you can do is go into class the next day and show them up there on there and said, here's what I did wrong and laugh together. You know, yeah. it happens. Laughing yourself is a good life skill. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good. So Tom, what's uh, going forward? What, what do you see uh, going on in your uh, birding uh, life from here on out? Uh, you know, I've become very fascinated with this concept of caring and how do we help people just get more enjoyment out of the outdoors. And, you know, one of the things I've noticed during this pandemic for me is I just spend a lot more time standing, looking at my bird feeder, just watching what's happening there and just getting that that solace from seeing these birds continue their lives. So how do you help that? I, I have a writing coach that I've been working with for the last four or five years now. And so I'm, I'm working a lot with her on my writing trying to figure out how to write and the way I joke about it. I learned how to write as a scientist and uh, you know, I can write these nice science papers and four people might read it. So how do you write in a way that more people can get, can feel like they're out there in the environment? So I'm working on that. Um, I've got a almost finished a draft book based upon a trip to Alaska last summer that I'm hoping to start looking for a publisher for this fall. And then I'm trying to write essays for, for the Washington Orthological Newsletter. And I send them out to the Audubon chapters. Some of the chapters use them. Uh, you're just trying to get that word out. I think continue to teach some birding classes. Hopefully we'll be able to start leading hikes again and, and get people out birding on those trips. One of the things I did for this class that was all online is okay, we can't take people birding. How do you help somebody have the confidence to go out and look on their own when they may never have done that? And so I actually I actually asked uh, Kathy Selk. Oh, why can't I pronounce her last name? She used to be the treasurer at WASS. Um, mm -hmm. but, but I asked her, she and her husband Arn, go over to Discovery Park. And I sent her a map of Discovery Park. And I said, I know you lead trips there. Help me figure out how I tell somebody where to go. And she sent me this color-coded map then with what they tend to see in each of about eight different areas in Discovery Park. And I thought, that's perfect. That so is. I've done that for half a dozen parks here in the Seattle area. Wow. And, and I give those to people, and then I'll pick one or two of them, and I'll step somebody through. Tom, I'm going to interrupt. Tom, are those on your website as, as a resource for people, or how can people find those? Those sound like a really valuable resource. Um, yeah, I, I can eventually make them available. I think they're yeah that they're probably on my Google Drive, but it may not be open for other people. So I'll I'll, fi I'll figure that out. But yeah, you know, just you know, how do you help somebody go out and and feel <laughs> confident that they can take a walk around Union Bay, you know, which is one of the best birding spots here in Seattle. Right. But if you've never done it, it could be intimidating. It is a little confusing. The trails go this way and that. Yeah. 
one of the cool things about this pandemic, I mean, nothing, nothing too cool about this pandemic, really. But one of the things that I, I, uh, cool things I've noticed is that as a birder, you can bird perfectly well in places where nobody is at. Yeah. Uh, and so being comfortable all by yourself in the wilderness is one, you know, prerequisite, I guess. But places like JBLM, uh, fabulous birding at, at Joint Base Lewis McCord. Uh, and there are, you know, there's nobody at them a lot of times. And so right. there are great, relatively socially isolated places that are great birding. So Right. You know, the other thing that was fun to do on this online class is, as you know, the Washington Ornithological Society helped put out that book, um, Birder's Guide to Washington. Right. And, and it's all online now. Mm-hmm. Well, at one point, I flipped out of the PowerPoint set and said, you know, I want to show you how you can go find. Oh, let me back up a second. So I did this class for the Mountaineers. And I'm thinking I'm going to get people from the Seattle area here, which mm-hmm. we had lots of people from Seattle. But I had a couple from Port Townsend, a person from the Metow Valley two different sets of people from um, Ellensburg. Wow. Actually had a couple from Northern California taking it. Had a guy who normally lives here in Seattle, but was traveling because of the pandemic. So he took it from Missoula, Montana. Hmm. You know, it's just from all over the place. Um, So that was fascinating. And so I was getting people and I was going to give them some birding trips up to the Okanagan, you know, with the idea, well, that class, because it was in May, was how do you bird from your from your house, from your yard, when you want to go in the neighborhood, how do you bird from your neighborhood? Then how do you bird in local parks? And then when you can go farther, you know, I showed them trips to Nisqually and trips up to the Skagit. And then I showed them actually a trip up into the Okanagan Highlands that would need a couple days to do. Um, So, you know, I showed them that, but then I thought, how else can I help on, you know, if, if they're in some place that I'm not, and I don't know, and I can't go over everywhere. So we jumped right to uh, the Washington Birders Guide to Washington that's on the website. And then, you know, I picked two places or three places. I said, well, let's go to the Metow. So we went to the Metow and we just worked through it right there online so people could see how to use that resource. And the number of comments we got back, oh man, I didn't know about that resource. And I showed them several others. You know, there's I showed them how to use eBird to find places to go right. birding. You know, it, it was just really fun and, and good reactions from people. Yes. So your class is more than just bird identification. It was how to go birding, too, in a way. Yes, how to go birding. Yep. Yeah. And a lot about behaviors. You've probably seen that science page on eBird um, in which you can go in and you can look at migration maps. Sure. And you can you actually show that migration of a particular bird. Well, I'll go pull those out. I pulled those out and put them onto PowerPoints. And then, you know, you can show them the migration of, of birds. And I would get the map, like when we were doing Swainson's Hawks, you know, I would show them the map that actually got out of, of birds of birds of the world, but it shows, you know, them going all the way down to Argentina. So I'd help people kind of see, Oh, that bird goes all the way to Argentina or the one, the 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 video movement one that I really like is the one of Swainson's thrushes because of course they were coming back in May sure. and I was telling people where to go to look for Swainson's thrushes and then I show them this map and these things are flying up from the Andes Mountains to breed up here and then headed back to the Andes Mountains 
I just find that mind-boggling. It is incredible. It is, birds are cool, cool creatures. That is for sure. Yeah. Well, Tom, thanks so much for being my guest today. Before we leave, I want to uh, give you a chance to make sure people know how to get in contact with you or reach out for you. Uh, and uh, I know you have a website. Yes. So uh, I have a, a website. It's thomasbancroft.org or thomasbancroft.com. Either one one has more of the photography on and the other is when I get it refixed back up will be more about my writing and also my sound recordings. I do a lot of sound recordings. Um, they're available on, some of them are available on SoundCloud, which people can find by just typing in my name and SoundCloud. Um, it actually have two 90 minute recordings up there from the Okanagan from this spring that have no human made sounds in them. It's just wonderful. Um, Yeah. So, and people can contact me through my website. Great. Well, that works, Tom. Thanks so much for being my guest today. I appreciate it. And uh, I, I, I love to hear that other people are out there as birding ambassadors. I have to say, uh, being a, a little bit of an ambassador for birding and conservation is part of what Bird Banter is all about. And it sounds like that is uh, a big part of your passion at the stage in your life. So I appreciate that. And thanks again. Thank you, Ed. This has been fun. I appreciate okay. it. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, that wraps up the Bird Banter Podcast, episode number 74 with Tom Bancroft. Tom is really becoming a birding ambassador with his birding classes, uh, with his service to WASS, uh, with his writing and photography. He is a real nice addition to the birding community in our area and is really inspirational. I really enjoyed talking to him and listening to him. I hope you enjoyed the episode also. Please leave comments, feedback. You can get a hold of me uh, through the contact page on birdbanner.com or uh, direct messaging me on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. Please let me know. Also, if you have suggestions for good guests, people you'd like to hear from in the future on the podcast, please let me know. Uh, So thanks for listening. Until next time, good birding. Good day. (laughs) 